0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: On the Heritage Radio Network in a few moments. Stick with us. Hey, we're Cloud Control. Control. And you're listening to Network.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. The following program has been brought to you by Barterhouse Wines. For more information, visit www.thebarterhouse.com.
2: Hello! Are you on? Yeah. I can't hear myself. Hello, and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues, coming to you every Tuesday live from 12 to 12.45 on the Heritage Radio Network. Here in the studio today with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez, bringing the hammer to all of you that step out of line, although they never do, do they? No, they never do. No, it's crazy. All right, call in all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. By the way, today's show brought to you by The Burger House, some of our favorite people in wine distribution. Something I'm sure all, all of our listeners know, but probably don't, is that um, I'm extremely lazy, so I find it difficult to memorize the names of any kind of, of wines that I like. Or you go into a store, and you find a wine, and you don't, uh, you, know, you don't really know what to get. All you need to do, seriously, is memorize the name of like five or ten distributors that you like, that you know bring in uh, interesting products. And then you can look on the bo- back of the bottles, find a distributor you enjoy, and uh, odds are you might have a winner. Anyway, a little tip from me to you on how to buy wine when you don't know what you're doing. All right, our first question comes in from Paul Peterson, who is a researcher at the Humane Society of the United States. I googled him. Uh, And he had a comment on last week's uh, gelatin uh, issue where we we were talking last week about uh, the possibility of using recombinant DNA technology to produce gelatin without having to kill a bunch of animals. And the reason to do this is because gelatin is awesome. Uh, and it's also used in things like uh, gel capsules. It has very, a lot of very good properties. Uh, gelatin's great. Anyway, uh, he has a comment on it. He says um, uh, the, whether or not a, a vegan would uh, use... The question is, would a vegan use this? Uh, and he says the answer, he thinks, is it depends on the individual. Uh, there's a similar, though, much more vexing project... Uh, to harvest meat cells from an animal and grow them in a bioreactor, thus to create meat without harming the animal, uh, with other potential side benefits like it might cause less pollution uh, than conventional farming, etc. Uh, and uh, he points me to a – I forget the name of it. It's called like meatharvest.org or something like that, Harvesting meat dot Whatever. Anyway, uh, because for some reason, hey, iPad people – Uh, figure out a reason why the the, uh, URLs get stripped out of my stuff when I put it on my iPad. Anyway, uh, there are some vegans who are fine with and prefer this technology, this artificial, well, this cultured meat technology, while others uh, would abhor such a thing. Basically, uh, Paul thinks it comes down to whether, uh, why one is truly vegan. Some simply want to create the least suffering, in which case they probably use the cultured meat, and some just uh, detest animal products uh, a priori, and they would uh, object to the technology, I think uh, I basically agree. I would object to the technology because straight up, I doubt that it would be delicious. I mean, unless you could literally cu- culture the muscle uh, a- exactly as it appears in my favorite piece of beef. You know what I mean? I doubt that I would like meat that's made in a bioreactor the same way that I like meat that's made on an animal. Do you know what I mean? It's like we I mean, think about it this way. Um, how much of a difference is there between the most delicious piece of beef that you've ever had, right, and crap hole, you know, third rate beef that you get in a uh, in, you know, in like a low rent supermarket. It's a big difference, right? Mustache? Mm-hmm. what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, my, my point is, is that, you know, I'm always shooting for ultimate delicious on a product. And so... Uh, And I think this is my problem with most meat substitutes in general, is that what they're substituting for is kind of the chewy texture of meat, right? And when I say that, I mean overcooked meat. They're usually shooting at overcooked meat, right? Kind of like, you know, tough, uh, you know, a little bit chewy. And then they try to substitute in meat-esque flavors. And by that, I mean usually protein breakdown products. So you're putting in uh, like nutritional yeasts, you're putting in... uh, broken down soy uh, compounds anything like uh, compounds like soy sauce things like that anything that are going to contain you know free amino acids that are going to give some of that umami nature and then also they typically substitute in some sort of browning or some sort of smoking to mimic uh, those kind of flavors that we get out of meats but really these are kind of only the externalities of meat you know i mean meat is so many other things it's the different muscles, it's the way the grains are, uh, align in different muscles, it's the way the fat is placed within them, it's the particular characteristics of the fat based on what the animal was eating. It's, it's many, many things. I mean, the, uh, the flavor of meat isn't some sort of monotonic thing that can be uh, recreated in a uh, bioreactor. Now, I mean, that said, I mean, if the, the, I, I'm going to assume the technology could some point get so sophisticated that it could literally grow, uh, you know, a, a ribeye. I just don 't see that happening anytime soon. I see uh, perhaps some sort of actual meat meat analog that uh functions better than many meat replacers on the market today, but I just don 't see you know my most delicious um, you know aged pea, aged uh ribeye steak uh that you know that I cook sous vide and sear over like a f- you know fiercely hot charcoal fire. And then, uh, and then drizzle it with, uh, mo- uh, with uh, you know, my favorite uh, Tuscan or Sicilian olive oil and sprinkle it with salt. I just don't see that coming out of a bioreactor anytime soon. What about you, Nastasha? I agree. Yeah. You're talking to the microphone, your face towards the window. I agree. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> She's only been doing the radio show for a year and a half, folks. Don't, don't mind her that she can't face into a microphone when she's talking. Anyway, uh, but then Paul, Paul has a question. He says, he was uh, curious whether I, uh, what experience I have with cooking satan, which is basically satan's uh, wheat, uh, wheat gluten that is then formed into a dough and is uh, typically cooked in a liquid where it absorbs the flavor from the liquid uh, and then is uh, sliced and then either sauteed, fried, stewed, whatnot, as a, as a meat substitute. And it's a traditional meat substitute. In uh, in you know parts of Asia hasn't uh, really caught on here to the extent that uh, I think it should. Many people um, use it. Instead, like they're saying, well, seitan's a much better meat replacer than tofu. I say you're both wrong. Uh, tofu is tofu and it's delicious and should be used like tofu is. And you shouldn't buy crappy supermarket tofu that's had all of its flavor leached out and it's been sitting there for a billion years in, in, a, in a whole crap load of water. I think that stuff's you know, vile and useless except as a flavor carrier. And seitan, I think, also needs to be explored for its own sort of properties instead of just being a straight up uh, Meat substitute. Uh, anyway, Paul says, uh, do I have any preferred cooking method, boiling versus braising? Uh, I would add pressure cooking is a good uh, cooking technique for it. Unfortunately, I have not uh, – and he also wants to know whether I've experimented with it cooking it sous vide, i.e. in a vacuum bag. Uh, I unfortunately haven't experimented with seitan in many, many years. I've only played with making it a couple of times. Uh, and it was, you know, years before I really got into cooking sous vide, it's an interesting idea. Uh, I don't know that you get a benefit from, uh, cooking sous vide though, because you're cooking typically at a high temperature anyway, I don't know that you get a benefit from cooking the wheat gluten at a lower temperature, uh, below uh, boiling point or su- substantially below boiling point. Uh, I think you might get some textural benefits from, like I say, cooking in a pressure cooker, because then you could get some expansion when you release the pressure. Um, You might be able to get some infusion by going sous vide, but you can infuse anyway with the stock. The stock permeates the the seitan as it's cooking. One advantage to cooking sous vide that I could think of off the top of my head is if you had a very expensive ingredient that you wanted to infuse into the seitan and cook it that way, you could cook it in a very, very small amount of uh, liquid. So if you had some expensive flavor uh, or something you didn't have very much of, you could probably bag the seitan in the thing uh, and then cook it that way. But I would not use a high vacuum because then you're going to be compressing it and and, uh, altering and or destroying the texture. Of the Satan fuse, very high vacuum is going to be dense and rubbery. So I would almost do it in a Ziploc bag rather than sous vide. I, w- I probably would never do it. Uh, sous vide. Uh, and are there any other vegetarian proteins that benefit from sous vide? Uh, again, if you, you, know, you can compress things, uh, you know, get rid of the air cells in, in things with sous vide, which might be uh, you know to firm up tofu or whatnot. But that's really more of a water expelling issue. So I can't think off my head of any vegetarian proteins that would benefit from sous vide other than possible textural changes, And infusion uh, techniques because the low temperature aspect of sous vide is not really necessary for vegetarian proteins. Anyone who thinks I'm a jerk and wants to call me out on that, please do because I'd like to know some good applications. What do you think, Stasha? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all right. Into the microphone at the time. Nice, nice. Okay, Ross McGuire from Dublin, Ireland writes in again about green vegetables. Ross says, I recently came across a Spanish vegetable uh, stew-type dish, minestra, made from fresh vegetables, artichoke, broad beans, runner beans, and white asparagus thickened with flour. It is a fantastic shade of green. From uh, From what I managed to glean, the artichoke, when cooked in water, changes to a strong viridian green. Viridian, nice call, viridian. Only only an Irish dude could come out with, like, the, the awesome shade of green, mm-hmm. right? Viridian green color. Uh, <laughs> along with the water, which is interesting, which is what gives this soup its strong pigmentation. Do you know what the cause of this color change is and how one might go about achieving it? Also, are there any other examples of that kind of natural color change which could be used to good effect in the kitchen? Cheers. Okay. Uh, cheers. Cheers, Ross. Anyway. Uh, well, that's interesting. Uh <sighs> As far as, you know, I'm used to, minestra is like soup in uh, Italian where it's the same word for soup as for, as zuppa. So you could use zuppa, you can use minestra, I guess as opposed to like brodo, which is more of a broth, right, Nastasha? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I don't know of any uh, Spanish recipe that goes by the name uh, minestra, but this uh, coming from an idiot who hasn't researched it, (laughs) but uh, so I can't say it, but uh, also... Uh, you know you can make then let's just say minestra is a soup you can make it from uh, any sort of mix of anything you want so we so what we're dealing here with is a soup or stew of artichoke broad bean runner bean and white asparagus that's then thickened with with uh, flour and it comes out uh, green now typically when you cook a green here, here's what happens with green things in general when you cook them right first of all the interesting thing you say is that uh, the water turns really green uh, chlorophyll is not water soluble so typically right in, what, what's happening is is uh m- the majority of chlorophyll is not going to leach out into the water and chlorophyll is what makes these things green okay so what what happens is if we, the reason why chlorophyll is not soluble in water is that it's got this long kind of hydrocarbon chain that comes off, off that's uh hydrophobic it wants to be soluble in oil which is why things like uh you know uh uh, basil oil and, and things like that are such nice bright green because we can extract a lot of the chlorophyll into the oil because it's water soluble, uh, oil soluble, soluble rather. So here's what happens when you cook. You stick stuff in boiling water. If there's any acid, uh, and I guess also McGee says alkali can make it happen, you can uh, break off uh, that hydrocarbon chain and now the, the residual part, which is still green, is leached into the water, Okay. Now, in the center of the, of the main part of chlorophyll, the, really the business center, is a magnesium ion. And uh, in, in water, uh, with the action of heat, and especially if there's acid, right, that magnesium ion gets kicked out and uh, replaced with hydrogen. And what you get is that kind of dark, uh, greeny, almost olive uh, drab or bluish, a bluish color uh, of the chlorophyll after that's been happening. So that's the major color change that happens in most uh, in most vegetables as they cook or as I should say, as they overcook, which is why we say you can add a little bit of baking soda to uh, something and your vegetables will turn mushy, but they'll go bright green, right? Bright green. Uh, because you're, you're basically what happens is, is when you put the vegetable in all of a sudden, you know, uh, the, the light couldn't come out of the vegetable very well because there's air sacs, the chlorophyll might be contained and stuff. So there's basically the, the color is muted. You throw it into water and boom, you know what I mean? It, um, it, it the cells are broken, the water penetrates, and now all of a sudden the green really pops. It really pops out. So I don't know whether or not uh, the color you're describing is some mixture of cooked and I mean otherwise, uh, you know, chlorophyll has magnesium taken out and some that hasn't. Some has become water soluble due to the action of cooking. I just can't tell. You'd have to send me a picture of your soup so I can uh, see what's what's going on. Uh, another thing you can do. Uh, it could be toxic, so please don't poison your guests. Uh, other than baking soda, which actually, Nastasha, baking soda would work really well in a soup because what you could do is you could add baking soda, cook your soup uh, down till it's to death. It'll go bright freaking green, stay bright green on you, and then at the last minute correct it with acidity, which will take out kind of the baking soda flavor and bring the soup back. You know, at, mm-hmm. w- once the temperature is a little bit lower, so it's not going to color change on you. It might be an interesting thing for you to try if you haven't tried it before. The other thing you can do is you instead of replacing the magnesium with copper, you can place a, I mean, sorry with hydrogen. You can replace with copper and it gets a crazy ass you know those olives that are like that hyper bright green like not the olives like manzanilla but the hyper bright Mm -hmm. like some charignolas are hyper bright like that I think not sure could be making this up could be lying I think that they add a little probably lying for those of you listening probably a lie Uh, that's the same color that's produced by uh, uh, taking the chlorophyll and replacing the magnesium with copper and so uh, you can do that but too much copper is uh, what's the word I'm looking for poisonous poisonous. But uh, small amounts of it aren't. So, anyway. Uh, and so what are some other things that you can do uh, to change colors? Well, another one, going back to McGee, uh, who uh, we were hanging out with at Tales of the Cocktail last week. If I get time to talk about it, I'll talk about it. Probably won't get time. Uh, especially if some of you suckers call in to 718-497-2128 with a question of 718 497 Um, Garlic and onions can turn interesting shades of blue and green uh, when they're cooked very slowly. Uh, And the very first uh, Curious Cook column that uh, Harold McGee put into the uh, New York Times, it's got to be like four years ago now, three or four years ago, uh, one of the things he treated was this fact that sometimes uh, if you – Puree onions and garlic, or just cut up garlic, and uh, cook it very slowly. Uh, it can turn green and blue. And what's happening is, is that uh, some some molecules, in fact, some of the ones that make, make it pungent, you know, some of these uh, sulfur compounds, can uh, get altered by enzymes that are native to the onions and the garlic. And uh, then combine together into larger molecules because typically larger molecules are pigmented, you know, or you can see them as opposed to smaller molecules, which are usually uh, colorless. Anyways, uh, so the. Uh Not always, usually. Uh, So what happens is is they combine and they get these kind of like shocking blue and greens. So anyone out there who's done any low temperature cooking, let's say you were to put a steak with garlic and butter in a bag and cook it at 55 Celsius for two hours, you'll notice uh, some of the garlic is going to turn kind of uh, bluish greenish. And this is something that you can do. And I've done actually – we've made uh, blue garlic soup using, uh, I think it was blue, blue or green. I I can't forget. like Onions turn green and garlic turn blue or the other way around and you can can alter the color by combining the different amounts of onion and garlic. Anyway, if you take a a puree or even just slices of onion and garlic, you stick them in a bag and you cook it at like 55 degrees for like an hour. The stuff's going to turn bright colors on you. You can then uh, pressure cook it to neutralize uh, some of those flavors so it's not too strong and then you can use it in large quantities and still have the color changed item to uh, serve. Uh, If you don't Cook it uh, in a pressure cooker afterwards, and the color does stay by the way, I've done it, uh, then you're in for a world of freaking hurt because if you can see that color, if it's a brightly colored puree, please don't go anywhere near your family or friends for the next week <laughs> and a half. The other one that I could think of off the top of my head is that you can uh, use, uh, if you have a blood based thing, and Nathan Mirvold, Chris Young, and Maxime Billet all al., the Modernist Cuisine uh, cookbook Cookbooks. The mega opus. Uh, and when's he coming on, by the way? When's Miravold coming on? The s- third week of August. All right. In the third week of August, Nathan Miravold is going to call into the show. So none of you chumps miss that stuff. Call in to Nathan Miravold in the third week. Where, what country am I going to be in?
1: 16th. You'll be here.
2: I'll be here? hmm Awesome. Call in to here, and you, our Cooking Issues listeners, are going to get the opportunity to personally ask... Nathan Mirvold a question now bear in mind Nathan Mirvold he might he might tear into you it depends on what you ask I mean you know you know he's, he's an opinionated guy it should be interesting mm-hmm. uh, I'm excited I'm super excited super looking forward to it so get your questions ready for the Mirvold thing and I think hey Jack we can go an hour on, uh, on Mirvold Day right Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, The other one I was thinking of from their cookbook is you can take blood and hit it with carbon monoxide—the same stuff that you use if you're going to suck a tailpipe. The sad stuff, carbon monoxide. If you take carbon monoxide and hit it to um, to meat, it goes incredibly bright red. There's there are, two, uh, there are two small children looking in the studio window right now who are incredibly <laughs> curious about the radio thing. Trust me kids it's not that interesting. Anyway, uh, so uh, and this is how they make their uh, rare beef jus where they cook uh, beef in a bag and they can optionally hit it with carbon monoxide to get a really really ripe bread uh, red color. Uh, you can also use this to rip off consumers by hitting meat with carbon monoxide to make it look bright red even though it's spoiled. And Ken Kirschenbaum bought a piece of meat. Ken Kirshenbaum Uh, the polymer chemist and our buddy from the Experimental Cuisine Collective at NYU bought a piece of meat and basically kept it out of a fridge uh, turning, uh, you know, awful uh, for weeks and stayed a nice bright red color because of the carbon monoxide they so nicely put into the container for it. He hates that. He thinks it should be outlawed. Let's take a break. Not yet! Uh, Because that goes into this one question Aaron Smith called in on blood basting. Nastash, you know, only you could ruin such an awesome segue from going, from changing the color of blood by adding carbon monoxide into a blood-based, <laughs> basic question. I ruined it for you. you, you Nastasha will always do this. If, you know what? If you're about to buy Nastasha a Christmas present or a birthday present, don't. Because what's going to happen is, is five seconds, literally five seconds before you try to buy her something or get her something, like a glass of water if she's thirsty, she will ask you for it and ruin the opportunity for you to get it for her. That is...
1: A lot of information you're giving away right now. Yes, it's a
2: lot of information, but it's true. and It might be helpful to some of our listeners should they ever meet you. Anyway, uh, Aaron Smith writes in with a blood-basting question. Hi, I uh, love the show and I'm thrilled that you're back from your break. I was looking through an old French cookbook, uh, the uh, Laveren's Cuisinier Français, uh, and from 1653, and noticed an interesting instruction in roasting a pig like a boar. The recipe is: you may disguise the boar, uh, you may disguise the pig uh, near to a boar. That is, after you have beaten it well, you shall endure it with blood. I don't know whether it's endure or endure. For me, uh, well, we'll get into this. And uh, and after a while, stick it, spit it, and not forgetting to uh, I'm going to say endure, even though I don't know. Uh, feet with blood before it's roasted. Serve it as it bore with sauce or without it. Uh, and then uh, Aaron puts down that the definition of endure uh, is to wet daub uh, some liquor as one doth a pie or cake before it is put into the oven. So basically, a pig is basted with blood before it's roasted on a spit. And um, Aaron was interested in what the blood might be doing. It has, uh, and I'm saying, I keep saying your name a lot because I'm not sure if this is guy Aaron or girl Aaron.
1: Aaron. With an E or an a? E. Oh.
2: Can't tell. Oh, Can't tell don't know. Anyway, um, sorry about my lack of knowledge on that. Anyway, so uh, I was curious about what's going on. It has sugars and amino acids, so it could be acting as a browning agent. I know a touch of glucose in Peking duck can lead to beautiful browning, because glucose is a reducing sugar, which you use to generate the Maillard re- reaction, uh, along with proteins and amino acids. Uh, the Google search led to Julia Child's description of pressed duck, where the duck is basted in blood sauce while it's being roasted. Uh, and so is this a standard method that's fallen out of flavor? Have I ever basted with blood or done in my pressed duck adventures? And want to know what was going on. Um, okay. Well, uh, and this is an Aaron's from San Diego. Um, so listen. <laughs> As far as I know, uh, I'm going to say andere, even though it might be endure, is a technique not just for basting blood or going on pies, Was a standard technique for coating things with different colors in uh, medieval times. So as a a presentation trick, for instance, if you were making a cock and trice, which is a bird, uh, you know, the back end of a bird glued onto the front end of a pig, right, you would take the seams and whatnot on the outside and you would endure it with different mixtures that would kind of form a crust and also color it to make it look more fanciful, right? Um, and then, you know, typically you would set that by then baking it uh, or roasting it. Now, uh, when I make a pressed duck, I don't, uh, you know, what what. I always did, and the recipes I have, and I think this is the way Tour d'Argent, the restaurant, does it, is they they take the duck uh, that's been strangled so the blood doesn't go out or suffocated, and then they press the the blood and juices out. Then the blood becomes uh, a thickening agent for the sauce that you use. Then when you cut the... The the meat's already been par-roasted. Then you cut off the breast slices, and you reheat them in the sauce, uh, and then the sauce thickens up, etc., etc. So I don't know of any recipe where you then baste it and roast it again. It's more kind of just a Reheat uh, with the slices. There's famous recipes uh, for like civet, like or civet, I guess, I don't know how you pronounce it in French, of uh, rabbit or jugged hair, which is the way a U.S. person would say it, that uses the blood of the hair as a thickening agent at the last, at the last part of the sauce because it will then uh, thicken up and can curdle and break. Nils Noren says in Sweden they have a famous blood soup that's made from goose blood that uh, is cooked for a long time, I think with acid, to stop it from coagulating too much. Um, so there is a long history of this, but the idea of using it as an outer coating, I would think that it would set and then uh, and then congeal with the heat and then maybe crust up as it dries out, but I don't know what it would uh, taste like. Uh, it doesn't gross me out. I mean, blood, meat, it's all part of the animal. If the animal – unless look, unless you're kosher, in which case, you know – don't eat the blood because the blood is the life, and uh, if you do, you know a curse on your people. You shall be cut off from your people, etc., etc. But unless it's like religiously uh, barred for from you, uh, for you from having it, I think it's a waste to throw it away because you know the, you done killed the animal anyway. Uh, might as well use everything you can I mean I think that's a more modern way of looking at it so I, you know I, this is thing. why is it inherently more gross nostalgia to eat the blood or any weird part of the of the animal why is it more inherently gross than any other part like why is like, like couldn't we culturally be raised to be like oh my god the loin jeez <laughs>
1: yeah. gross
2: right I mean why is it inherently yeah. is it because when we cut ourselves we're like crap that's blood and we're yeah. freaked out by yeah, it yeah I
1: think it's a, it's a yeah.
2: It's same okay. reason why people think that like they're making a sexual statement by eating like you know deer testicles and stuff like that yeah you
1: know mm-hmm.
2: when a guy eats a deer testicle people are like <clears throat> <Yeah. clears throat> you know what I mean yeah. like is it because of some sort of weird like
1: sexual connotation yeah right with yourself yeah. So,
2: so like things that are gross or things that like we don't want to eat like you know things that I and mean, whatever very strange <laughs> anyway alright so now we will go to our first commercial break call in all your questions to 718-497-218-28 718-497-2128 cooking issues
3: The
1: following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Join Linda Palaccio for a taste of the past every Thursday at 12 p.m. as she indulges her curiosities about food, cooking, drinking and dining of the past by taking a journey through culinary history. Linda interviews authors, scholars, friends and chroniclers to learn about what was eaten, where and how, from as long ago as ancient Mesopotamia and Rome right up to the grazing tables and deli counters of today. The show underscores food as a lively link between present and past cultures. Again, that's Thursday at 12 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. So oh, nice. So nice, that is true.
2: Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Uh, by the way, Jack has managed to find, and I really like it, One of the, oh, must be one of the only James Brown songs that I don't know.
1: Oh, wow.
2: You know, like, I, you know, I, I don't know how many thousands of, of hours I've listened to James Brown. And managed to get one of the ones I don't know. Great tune, though.
1: It's called Cold-Blooded, and it's from the record called Hell.
2: Oh, yeah. Guess what I'm going to go out and download today. No offense, James. I've spent many, well, you're dead. But no, I've spent many, many hundreds of dollars on your products. I think I'm going to go steal this one on the internet. So what do you think, Nastasha?
1: <laughs> I don't know.
2: Cold-Blooded. <laughs> hell anyway uh by the way i think linda palacio might be a good person to ask that last question on, on blood and history mm-hmm. linda palacio is uh I, th- I think she wants to be involved somehow with the museum of food and drink and uh yeah. we'd we love to have her involved so if i see her which i uh, i very rarely do but if i see her i'll ask her that that blood question because that might be right up her alley okay Naveen Sinha writes in, and by the way, Naveen is the head TA for, was last year, I don't know if he is this year, uh, for the class that uh, Farhan uh, Adria headlined uh, in Harvard.
1: And he's a vegetarian.
2: Okay, Nastasha, why don't you bust on the guy for being a vegetarian on, on the radio? The guy already, listen, this poor guy, all right, listen, this poor guy, Naveen, right? He, <clears throat> he goes to this event, uh, and, he, and he's now hanging out with all these chefs, Right, because he was involved with this uh, class at Harvard, where they had some of the world's greatest chefs go in, like Wiley, my brother-in-law, all these guys go in, and like all chefs, invariably bust on this guy for being a vegetarian. Leave the guy alone. No,
1: he's a TA at Harvard in the food food studies program.
2: He's not a TA at Harvard in the food studies program. He's in the physics and material science program, and they're teaching a study. They're teaching a class on how to learn about that subject through the lens of food. Yes. Yes. Leave the man alone on his vegetarianism, please.
1: He's a nice guy. I hope he calls in.
2: Yeah. Well, if he if he does, I recommend he calls in two seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Anyway, Naveen uh, writes in. He says he recently read about the Uzo effect, in which uh, anise-flavored spirits and liqueurs become opaque white usually unless it's been colored beforehand when diluted with water. I was wondering if you've seen this effect occur with other types of spirits and also do I know of any other examples of color-changing beverages? Thanks. All right, so uh, what's happening with, um, with uh, Uzo... Or I don't know why the hell they call it the ouzo effect. Seriously? like, like they, they, they say that ouzo is drunk more in, in the US than uh, pastis, ricard or absinthe. But since absinthe uh, you know, went through that surge in popularity after the ouzo effect had been characterized, uh, maybe we should rename it the absinthe effect. How many, By a show of hands out in the world on the internet, how many of you have had a glass of ouzo this year? Anyone? Um, anyone? Right? Uh, some sort of absinthe beverage? There's two people in here raising their hands, you know what I mean? Or pastis or Pernod-based uh, uh, substance. Anyways, so uh, I'm going to forget the name because for some reason I forgot to paste it into my iPad. But um, I believe the uh, the oil involved, the chemical, is called anatole. I think it's what it's called, anatole. Someone will call in and say, I can't believe you forgot the name of it, but there it is. I did. Uh, <clears throat> and what happens is is that it's a very interesting effect. When you're, when you're making um, – Usually when you make an emulsion, you have to provide energy, usually uh, mechanical energy to uh, create uh, the little droplets of oil inside of uh, a liquid. And the reason is is because uh, it takes a lot less energy for, because there's a lot more surface area and there's actual energy associated with keeping two um, immiscible, i.e. don't mix together liquids next to each other. So that's why usually you have to beat things with whisks and blenders to get them to emulsify. Another thing you can do to lower the amount of energy you could put in is is to add an emulsifier, which takes away some of the energy required to make that emulsion. But the way the Uzo effect works is entirely different. Instead of using mechanical energy, an emulsion is made basically almost spontaneously. It's called spontaneous emulsion. And what's going on is that uh, the oil is soluble in, in ethanol, in, in alcohol, but not in water. So uh, what happens as you dilute, uh, you know, I'm going to say... Uh, absinthe or perno, right, because I don't drink ouzo, uh, you know, why not other things like that? Why not like, uh, why not like aguardiente or like any other anise flavored thing? Like why Uzo? No offense to the Greeks. No offense. You know what I mean? Anyway, so uh, when you dilute it with water, um, you have – the entire solution is basically uh, evenly and homogeneously saturated with, uh, with this oil and all of a sudden becomes super saturated and it, and it does it in a way that, that many, 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 many millions of tiny, tiny droplets are instantly formed. right? And because that's super fast nucleation, you get these small, small droplets that are stabilized. Right? Uh, For hours and hours and hours, sometimes even days, depending on on how it works. And so it's this like instant, like super saturation and massive nucleation that causes the Uzo effect. And yes, it is uh, visible in many other spirits. I don't know of any commercial spirits. Uh, other than the anise-flavored ones where it happens uh, because that's the thing. But many of the fl- uh, spirits that we make in the rotary evaporator will uh, show the, the uh, ouzo effect when they're diluted. So some of our Thai basil spirits will, uh, if you add uh, water to them, they will go white on you when you mix. Uh, and then later on, if you let it sit for days and days, the oil will float to the top. Um, and just tons of them I've had caraway go white on me when I when I've done it and I don't know what the components are in it that's doing it but I've had some of our caraway although maybe it was the caraway that we put fennel into it should make more sense maybe 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 possible um, but so the answer is Naveen yes there are other oils that are uh, you know Soluble in ethanol and weakly or insoluble insolu- in uh, water, and have this effect. The other thing that liquors can do to change colors is you can shift uh, acid base equilibria. So you can have a liquor that's neutral, that has uh, anthocyanins in it, and they'll start out uh, in the bluish range, and then, uh, like blue corn, uh, and then as you acidify it with uh, lemon juice or whatnot, it'll turn red. Uh, or reddish-purple. That's another thing you can do, although I don't know of any... Com- There's some teas in Thailand that are flower-based. There's a blue flower-based tea in Th- I believe it's Thailand. Because Nastasha yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. yeah, Yeah, mm-hmm. that we researched. And, um, and that one, you make the tea and it's blue. You add the lemon it turns red. Uh, so that's something you can do. Another thing you can do is you can do kind of a re- reverse ouzo where you can suspend a weakly soluble, uh, like, calcium or magnesium salt in, and then when you acidify it, it'll go clear. Uh, Nastasha and I have had uh, – we had to do we, – we, we, it's interesting you should ask this because we tried those things for this event we had we to do. We didn't try that flower. What was it called? We couldn't find the flower. I forget the name of it. It's similar okay. to like a blue cornflower or something. Cor- it, looked, it was that color of blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, anyway, but it was very rare here in the US. Uh, anyway, so we tried it and uh, not to much uh, good effect, especially because we needed to do the opposite of what was easy. We needed to go not from red to, uh, not from blue to red, but from red to blue. And basic drinks. Let me just tell you what's the word we're looking for here? Gross. <laughs> Gross. Um, okay. Uh, Brian Oaks writes in uh, On iPads and fruits I know from the radio show That you have an iPad Any recommendations On food related apps No I don't really I don't really have Any food related apps Yeah you do What
1: Chang's thing
2: What Chang's app I don't have that on here Is oh. that released yet y- Yeah I think so
1: But listeners If you're interested In developing an app For Heritage Radio Network Email us at Info At Heritage Network Dot com Wow
2: Nice huh I've heard some people like the ratio thing, but I've never used it.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know people that like that. Yeah? Yeah.
2: And I hear that uh, – I don't I – don't, uh, you know who uh, – you know, Jerry Lavish, our, uh, our web guru, he would know because he, he does that kind of stuff. I, look, I use my uh, iPad as basically a book. It's basically like you know I have like uh, you, know, you know probably hundred thousand pages or something of uh, of science related uh, books and articles uh, in my iPad, and that's mainly what I what I use it for. Uh, but then people write in, tell us what they think their best uh, their best food apps are. Uh, also, uh, Brian just got back from a trip to Florida and stopped by the Fruit and Spice Park. Good job. Everyone should go to the Fruit and Spice Park. Uh, I think we talked about it last week a little bit, right? Our trip to yeah, the Fruit and Spice Park. We but did. he has a recommendation that I might have forgotten to make, uh, which is, I would recommend bringing something to rinse your hands and face with because you are going to be covered with sweet, drippy, sticky mango juice. Not that there's anything wrong with that, he adds. I say at least 15 different mangoes and could have tried at least a dozen more. Why not? Why didn't you?
1: Maybe I did not have to go to dinner.
2: Maybe. Or maybe they were, maybe because maybe he didn't get the super, like, treatment and mm-hmm. they, they chased him out of there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm thinking rapid infusion with mango puree and rum. Keep up the great show, Brian Oaks. Although, you know what I really want to do uh, is I want to take some of those mangoes and infuse the mango chunks in a vacuum with uh, booze because that would be delicious. But we couldn't, when we went, harvest enough of these mangoes to – to do that too is an excellent recommendation by the way bringing something to uh, wash your hands and face with uh, what I used when I was out was the incessant rainstorm that was pounding us with buckets of water every 10 seconds right yeah. so we had a we had a separate problem in that we couldn't like keep our cameras out because none of us had like you know diving cameras because we were basically tasting mangoes in like 3 feet of water like we needed like snorkel gear to do our tasting um well, you know what? I'm, I've had this problem so many times. You want to take fruit out of a tasting and you don't know what to do. So anyone out there who has this, I mean, we need a way to label fruits. Sharpies don't write on f- on waxy fruits, especially when it's raining. And the Sharpie comes off and then the Sharpie starts writing. So Sharpie, I know I love Sharpie. Sharpie, all love to you and for all of the all of the good times that we've had together. But it is ineffective for writing the names on fruits if the weather is at all messed up.
1: They need to make a fruit Sharpie.
2: Then, yeah. Thank you, Nastasha. They need to make a fruit Sharpie. Are you listening out there, people? Someone either tell me... Look, I don't want it to be horribly toxic. Like, I'm not willing to die to label my fruit. But I need some sort of, like, fruit label so I can write on it. The other idea I had is, like, what if they had, like, a special, like, little, like, needle thing where you could, like, almost, like... You know one of those old Dymo, like, label makers that would punch that tape?
1: Mm -hmm. But, like,
2: you could just, like, quickly, like... Type the letter And it would stencil Into the fruit skin
1: We should just Bring uh, Whatever the thing is called It'll
2: t- on Any tape you put on will come Come right the heck off If it's raining And like the sh- Like McGee and I Were out there The second day When, when uh, you were Driving to Miami We were trying to write And the pa- as we were writing The paper was bleeding off Into the uh in, Into the earth It was a freaking nightmare Which Which A Meant that we could Taste fewer fruits And B Is making our job Of figuring out What the heck we ate A lot lot harder yeah. Um Anyway, I'm glad someone's going to the Fruit and Spice Park. Everyone should go to Miami. Look, if any of you guys plan a trip to Miami, you need to uh, go down to South Day to the Homestead area, to the Fruit and Spice Park. uh, And and then when they tell you that you can't eat the fruit, I don't know, punch them in the face. Uh, Don't do that. Don't do that. And uh, do whatever you can to get a hold of some of the fruit. They usually let you eat the fruit that's fallen on the ground. The problem with the fruit... Two things I've noticed. One, the problem with the Fruit Spice Park uh, is that they allow the public in a lot and so they have to be careful about the fruits because otherwise they'd be stripped bare instantaneously. Um, The other problem is is that tropical fruit people are more covetous of their fruit. This has been my experience, my relatively small experience, as opposed to temperate fruit people. Like you have someone with an orchard fruit uh, or uh, like a a pear or apple orchard, you know whatever. You're like, can I have this fruit? They're like, yeah, take it. Take it. Otherwise, it's going to fall on the ground and rot. You know what I mean? If they're not commercial. If they're commercial, it's a different story. But these guys are like, they know every... Remember? These guys knew every single mango that was on that tree. And mm-hmm. if you took one, they're like, where'd that mango go? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they're... they're it's, a different, it's a different kind of crew. I still haven't figured it quite out yet. <clears throat> anyway, why don't we take one more commercial break and then come back and slam through these last couple questions. Call your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Cooking issues. Brooklyn, baby. We don't live in, Brooklyn. We live in Brooklyn. baby. Wow. Anyway, yeah, Nastasha, by the way, even though we're, we're are we on? Yeah, we're on? Even though we're in Brooklyn uh, a lot of the time, Nastasha is like an old school Brooklyn hater. So anyone out there, anyone out there who's a Brooklyn patriot... Please call in no, and give Nastasha serious no, ribbing. No. Nastasha, you also no, I, no. I hate the roads in Brooklyn. Like someday for this, we're going to do the entire session on Neil uh, Neil Diamond's Brooklyn Roads, and it must be some sort of like crazy sarcastic song because the roads here in Brooklyn,
1: Brooklyn Roads,
2: Brooklyn Roads, yeah, you know the song Brooklyn Roads,
1: Rambling Roads,
2: Brooklyn Roads. No, this crack. You're thinking crackling roads. Crackling roads. Yeah, Brooklyn roads. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Get up on your Neil Diamond. All right. Anyway, uh, so because the roads here are some of the worst dang things in the world. It's like you know, it's it's like you someone's sitting there and throwing hand grenades into the pavement and blowing holes in it for no apparent reason, and then and then they or the, or or like. Somehow, like, meteorites made of asphalt are falling into the, into the road and just leaving giant, like, or volcanoes of asphalt. They're coming out of the road at different points. And if you're a biker, the roads of Brooklyn are, um, what's the word? Crap, yeah. right? Yeah. Crap. Anyway, uh, but Brooklyn itself I enjoy. I enjoy Brooklyn itself, just not their roads. Okay, uh, <clears throat> James T., Ray writes in about popcorn. Normally I eat with reckless abandon. However, I love to snack and I wanted a low-calorie option. I like popcorn as a snack and re- recently purchased an air popper to pop my corn and I love it. So the question, can I get salt to adhere to the popcorn without a lipid or making a soggy mess? And by the way, I've tried the cooking spray with mixed results. I love the show. James T. Ray. Mm. Um, well, the first thing you can do... Is to get uh, <clears throat> popcorn salt. So uh, Morton makes many different kinds of salt, and uh, one of them is popcorn salt. I just dropped my iPad. Oh my and popcorn salt is uh, very, very, very fine, and so it adheres to popcorn much better than even their uh, iodized salt, and definitely better than uh, kosher salt and things like that. So, and it's super, super fine, easy to distribute. So, if you've had mixed results with the cooking spray which is what i was going to recommend before i read the last line of uh, of your thing um you know spread it out spray a little cooking spray and then a fine dusting of this popcorn salt i think you're going to get better adhesion um aside from that i did a, a primary search there are i mean you could do i mean all the other things make it such a pain in the butt that i don't know that you do it you could make like a, a, a like an, an alcohol dispersion like a like a, like a a vodka dispersion of salt spray it over the popcorn throw it in an oven and dry it back out what a pain in the butt I mean you want to make popcorn presumably you want to eat it at some point right you don't want to sit there and re-wet it re-dry it out right it doesn't make any sense right Nastasha that's too much trouble right yeah
1: I just put salt and sugar on mine air popped did you listen to the question at all what's it? air popped is like in the In the popper?
2: Again, Nastasha's sitting there thinking about... I'm sure she's thinking about lunch, which we're going to (laughs) have delicious Roberta's lunch. Instead of what's going on. Air popper means that it's basically like a hairdryer that, that's contained. And, it, and by the way, your air popper makes a good coffee roaster. I don't know whether you knew that, James. You can roast coffee in your air popper. Uh, you have to be careful because the chaff flies all over your, uh, your room. You have to contain it make sure it doesn't catch on fire. Fire is a problem. Anyway, um, I used to do it. For years, I used an air, air popcorn maker before I bought a, a coffee roaster and then moved to Whirly Pop, which is actually my favorite popcorn making technique. So in air popping, Nastasha, there is no added oil.
1: Mm, okay.
2: Yeah, uh, I wonder whether you could add just a small amount of oil to the popcorn kernels as you're popping them in the air popper, and then um, maybe then increase adhesion. I don't know. That might Because if the spray problem was that maybe it wasn't getting all over it, maybe a small amount of oil on the popcorn kernels themselves. Mm-hmm. But the problem with uh, doing that, and this is probably why it won't work, is that it's what's, that technology, air popping, is what's called a fluid bed kind of technology where the popcorn kernels are all separated from each other and kept agitated by the uh, air that's blowing in them. And then when a popcorn kernel pops, it immediately becomes less dense than its unpopped cousins and then floats to the surface and then it's pushed out so it doesn't burn at the bottom. And so I wonder whether adding a small amount of oil would kind of ruin that effect. Uh, or get into it or just ruin everything in general. But I know that you can have oil in a popcorn popper because that's how I, uh, when you roast coffee the oils are in there and the oil uh, gets on the inside of the air popcorn popper and it does foul it a little bit but it doesn't like ruin it in any way. So that could be another thing to do. But My first step would be to get the actual popcorn salt and you can buy it on, you could buy it on the Amazon.com. Anyway, uh, Garth writes in about vanilla. We grow vanilla in the South Pacific Island of Tonga and process the beans and at different products in new zealand uh how would we produce a vanilla foam that we could use at food shows for attendees to scoop some foam from a bowl to taste our vanilla i visualize a nice glass fish bowl without any fish with an aeration he actually says fish removed get a new one don't just remove the fish from the fish bowl because then you're killing the fish no I, to- I don't i don't
1: think he was saying that
2: anyway all right <laughs> hey just without a fish i'd buy a new one anyway with an aeration pump causing the liquid in the bowl to foam up so people can just scoop some on a tasting stick. Not sure what type of base would be best as it uh, as it ideally would just suit our vanilla flavor without too much else competing. Could taste like a custard, a panna cotta, ice cream, jelly, citrus, etc. We have carrageenan but no other high-tech ingredients. Okay. Foam done with a uh, aquarium pump in a bowl uh, or in a, any sort of vessel was something – uh, that a bunch of chefs were working on, and was first cracked and pioneered by uh, Andoni Aduriz uh, from uh, when you know at Mugaritz in like uh, years ago, and uh, his recipe, which is uh, on the internets, I think uh, if you just search the the famous dish he made with it was called Vanity, and it had a chocolate foam, uh, and <clears throat> the what he the basic recipe is two percent. Powdered egg whites by weight uh, of the mixture, which you know he then lets um, uh, what's the word hydrate, and zero point one, i.e., one is that right? One gram in a liter. Can't be that low. Look it up, but it's something like that. One gram and a liter of xanthan gum. If you can get carrageenan, I'm pretty sure you can get xanthan uh, where you are. If not, it's easy to mail order xanthan, and you only have to use a tiny, tiny bit of it so you can get a hold of it. And that's the basic recipe that he uses to make the big air bubble foams, and then you just put it in the bottom and do it out. Now, the downside is, is they have very little uh, flavor in them because they are like 99.99% air with only a little bit of bubbles and they pop almost instantaneously. I mean, that's the idea of it. I think that for what you're doing, you're going to want a more dense, stable foam, uh, in which case you could probably just use powdered egg whites and vanilla uh, and, and your vanilla extracted water um, or, or something. I'm not trying to think of what the best foam would be. You could use... If you have agar you can make a fluid gel and then and then shoot it out of an ISI canister. The problem with foams is I think that they're they're going to reduce the flavor of your vanilla by introducing a lot of air into it. The other problem is is you might want to look at an article uh, brought to my attention also by McGee uh Uh, from 1997 called The Effect of Milk Fat on the Flavor Perception of Vanilla Ice Cream. Uh, Basically, the more fat you have, the uh, more muted your perception of the vanilla flavor is. So I would stay away from anything that contained fat because uh, if you're going to want to highlight this, and I I sense why you want to have it in a foam because you want the air, and then first of all, you probably don't want to use that much of it, uh, and you probably want to have the flavor come out. You also don't want to use a lot of heat because heat is going to alter the uh, flavor of your uh of your vanilla. It's too bad you can't get something like Versawhip, which you can then just whip it up into a foam with a little maltodextrin or something like uh, you know, what else? Like Versawhip or yeah, metho F- methocell F50. I mean, you could try just a stable uh egg white foam. Um, You could probably get pasteurized egg whites and then do it that way and do it uncooked, but I don't want you to have that eggy flavor. But I I don't – A, I don't want you to heat it because I don't want you to alter the flavor of the vanilla through the heat and B, I don't want you – I don't want you to add any fat because then – you're adding fat, you know what maybe a minimum amount of heat, like almost like uh, an Italian meringue where you whip the egg white and then you pour the hot sugar in to set it a little bit, but it's not really cooking it for a long time. That might get it, and then you could just basically have this like m- meringue almost meringue icing that people could scoop up and then just go sugar and vanilla. it's going to have the air, you'll get a good delivery. What do you think yeah, it's low tech yeah. Low tech, delicious. Good job. Delicious and low tech. Also, you can maybe stir some vanilla in after you cook it, so that you, uh, so that you uh, have some totally uncooked vanilla in it. If it, if you mm-hmm. go a little over stiff. These are my recommendations, Garth. Use them for what they're worth, which is probably nothing. Uh, lastly, uh, Jason writes in about nixtamal. Hi, Dave. I love the post about nixtamalization. Thank you. But uh, I'm having trouble doing it here in the UK because field corn is not common. I have two questions. Do you need to use intact kernels or can you use broken cracked kernels? Most field corn here is sold as bird feed. A lot of it cracked. Also, can I use a grain mill like the one that would connect to my KitchenAid mixer to grind the grain after treatment? Thanks, Jason. Unfortunately, Jason, cracked corn won't work because uh, it doesn't uh, hydrate the same – basically – the, the outside, the pericarp is what's stopping the water from going instantly into the corn kernel and overcooking it. And so if you treat it with lye and it's already been broken, it's just it, – no, it just won't work. It won't, it won't be the same. Uh, what I would recommend if you can't get field corn is use – even though I said in the post not to use popcorn, popcorn will work, right? It's just not quite as um, – it's just it's just harder. It's not ideal for it, but it's better than brack, uh, cracked or, or broken. So I would try to use. Uh, I would get popcorn. You'll get the largest uh, kernel ones, not the small kernel variety that you can. And is it the best? No, because it's hard to grind. Right? Uh, I would not use the KitchenAid. That thing's going to gum up. I have one, a grain mill, KitchenAid grain mill. Thing's going to gum up. Lickety, lickety, lickety split. I would then, you know, if you have to, I would use a food processor. Um, and you know, and then maybe even mortar and pe- mortar and pestle some of it to get the texture down. The problem with the food processor is you're going to have to add more water. I have done it. It's a sticky, awful mess, but I, I have done it. Um, so you you can you can do it. Um, it's just you know it's not ideal, but it definitely is possible for experimentation. The people ate the my my uh, tortillas that I made with uh, with popcorn uh, and a food processor, and they didn't you know. They didn't punch me in the face. I didn't. Also, I didn't have those looks of me. Well, this was good, but me, 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 me. You know what I'm talking? You know those looks? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so give it a try, and I'd appreciate anyone from the UK because I've had a couple people maybe have this problem. Write in with their solutions to finding uh, good ways to do niximalization in the UK. Anyway, come back next week and get another episode of Cooking Issues.
4: This is behind the scenes food news with Katie Kiefer. AMP goes local. The great Atlantic and Pacific tea company, commonly known as the AMP, that grocery chain you've seen all your life, has glommed onto the concept of local and sustainable and has just introduced a new consortium of producers known as the Mid Atlantic Country Farms, from which they will source beef and poultry. The animals are antibiotic and hormone-free, raised on vegetarian feed. There is no mention of certified humane or animal welfare-approved uh, status, however. Maybe they haven't gotten that far in the marketing department. But what makes this of interest is that A&P supplies all A&P supermarkets, Pathmark, Food Emporium, Waldbaum's, and Superfresh. These are not particularly high-end supermarkets, so this is good news for the average consumer. If you want to read more about this, you can go to the AMP website, which is www.apt.com dot com slash pressroom. This has been behind the scenes food news with Katie Kiefer.
3: Finger on the pole and City Winery are proud to present the Summer Barbecue Blowout Festival, August sixth, from noon to four p.m. The barbecue is happening at City Winery, located at one fifty-five Varick Street in New York City. Restaurants featured at this event are Empire Mayonnaise, Van Dag, Momofuku Mofar, Imperial No. 9, End, Mexicu, Craft, Dizzy's Club, Coca-Cola, The Meatball Shop, and Dos Toros. Providing the soundtrack for the day are Midnight Magic, Computer Magic, New Villager, Punches, Ducky, DJ Autobot, and the Snacky Tune DJ. VIP and general admission tickets are available at CityWinery.com. Finger in the poll for City we'd like to thank our sponsors. Heritage Foods USA, New York Magazine, Rekha Vodka, Sonar, Smile, Guilt City, Sub-Zero, and Wolf. Please come out and join us for a day of fun, food, and dancing. For more information, go to www.fotpnyc.com.